0: Hi, this is Dale McConkie, host of Church Potluck. I wanted to take a couple of minutes to share three news items with you before we start the episode. First, you may have noticed that we have been on a hiatus for a few months, and my apologies for that. I way overextended myself last semester, but we're back up and running, and hopefully we'll be providing regular episodes with you all throughout the rest of the year. Second, What do you do when you just apologize for being overextended? You announce a new podcast. Uh, This will be an experimental podcast that tracks my deep dive this year, both personally and professionally, with Jesus movies. And the podcast is going to be called Jesus Christ Movie Star.
1: Jesus
0: Christ movie star Should we believe a movie? Say you are. This is going to be a very experimental thing. It may be a short-lived thing. it may be a sustainable thing we will find out, but I'm going to focus on Jesus movies this semester, so I thought I might as well go ahead and share them with y'all. So stay tuned for an episode. definitely by next week sometime. And finally, today's episode was recorded back in October. In my sex and gender class last semester, I invited two clergy friends who also identify as transgender, and then they spoke to my class. And in fact, you'll hear my class asking questions in this episode. But then our guests spoke at a campus lecture in the evening, and the auditorium was filled to capacity. In fact, they had to turn some students away because of the fire codes. And I know this issue of transgenderism and everything around LGBTQ matters is a very controversial topic. My goal at Church Potluck is to provide opportunities to learn about a variety of religious perspectives, so I hope you enjoy hearing about these clergy's experiences, no matter where you fall on the theological spectrum. Okay, on with the show. Three, two, one.
1: So how has the day been so far? It's been alright. Yeah, just yeah. had a good drive. Chicken pot pie. Right.
0: <laughs> Kim- Kimball, you are uh, back on campus for not the first time since you were a student, but
2: uh, what, what what what's been the biggest uh, striking thing for you? Oh, I was just telling Andy I went in and Evans Hall still smells its the
1: same,
2: and everything else is different. Those college—that's what you all have to look forward to. The the, the college smells of, of Evans
0: Hall. So. Well, welcome everyone to Church Potluck, where we are serving up a smorgasbord of Christian curiosity. I'm your host, y'all can't laugh at that. (laughs) (laughs) All right, this is going to be bad, bad, bad. (laughs) I'm your host, Dale McConkie, sociology professor and United Methodist pastor. And you know, there are two keys to a good church potluck, plenty of variety and engaging conversation. And this is exactly what we are trying to do on Church Potluck sitting down with friends and sharing our ideas from a variety of topics, from a variety of academic disciplines, and a variety of Christian traditions. And we have two very special guests uh, to introduce to you today. First of all, i just just open it up and just let you all introduce yourself right from the beginning.
1: Sure. My name is Andy Woodworth, and I use she, they pronouns. I'm one of the pastors of Neighborhood Church in Atlanta, Georgia, and I'm also a United Methodist clergy person.
0: That is awesome. And we usually, this is what we usually do when we introduce our guests. But we have a live audience. And so let's see if the live audience can outdo the techno applause. So could you all just welcome Andy for us? Oh, that is not as good as this. This is much louder. So anyway, but thank you. That was a good effort. Okay. And our second guest, we have Kimball Sorrells.
2: Yes, my name's Kimball, and I use they, them pronouns or he, him pronouns. Both are fine. And I am a Barry alum, and I am an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ. And also my day job, I work at Emory's Center for Contemplative Science and Compassion-Based Ethics, or as we like to just sometimes call it, the Compassion Center. Great. Right.
0: Thank you very much. Here's here's the automatic applause. And now the class applause. All right. No cheering, though. There was applause, but I didn't hear the cheering like I heard on the automatic applause there. But as you uh, can tell, we're doing something very different than we've ever done on, on Church Potluck before. We have a live audience. Where we are recording this during my one of my upper level courses the sociology of sex, gender, and sexuality. And Andy and Kimball just finished talking to my sociology of religion class, and so we were working them hard, and we brought them on campus to also do a uh, lecture this evening, and the title of that lecture is Ministry of Transformation, A Conversation with Trans Clergy, and so by that title, you might have been able to surmise by now that both Andy and Kimball identify as trans, and Andy and Kimball, we're going to start right now. I've already told you about this blue button here. This blue button is for you to press. I I downloaded it. Usually, we're very affirming on Church Potluck, and we use this whenever you get something right. But this blue button here is for you to press. Anytime I misgender you, anytime I use awkward or inappropriate wording, this is what you need to press this for. All right. that That is that. My conversations with my son, whenever we're talking about issues and I'm talking about someone I know who is trans, I'll say, she, he goes them, and then goes to the next thing with her. They're, that's right. He's and, you know, he doesn't have the button, but he just keeps correcting me. You use the term in elasticity in the last class, Mm -hmm. my brain, for whatever reason, tends to be very inelastic despite whatever good intentions I have. And so you just uh, practice right now. Mm -hmm.
2: There you go. All right. We
1: are... this button. I need one of these.
2: (laughs) No. Can we get this in church? I'm saying, yeah, (laughs) for all sorts of reasons.
0: (laughs) The congregation might want that for your sermons. There you go. Exactly right. Here's that. All right. right. Let's just uh, start off by letting you all jump in however you want to, to tell your stories as Being trans, I'm sure, is a distinctive enough moniker. (laughs) That was me that pressed that one that time. But that is as a very distinctive characteristic to have. But then to be trans and to be clergy, you must be in a very tiny sliver of the global population and the US
1: population. So go ahead and Tell us a little bit about your experiences, however you want. Yeah, there's not a lot of us, and we have meetings. We do. Yeah, we've met at the meetings. We've met at the meetings. So yeah, like this is Andy, and I grew up in Atlanta and was a part of a pretty progressive United Methodist congregation growing up and went into the Methodist ministry after seminary and after a brief stint running a Presbyterian summer camp. And then about seven years into my ministry as an elder of the United Methodist Church, I was given the opportunity to help start a new congregation called Neighborhood Church. And around 40 years old, while I was serving at Neighborhood, realized that I was trans and decided that I needed to transition for myself and just for my own health and mental health and commitment to being who God made me to be. And so started that process not too many years ago, and so I'm about four years into my transition journey. And all of that has gone remarkably well. Wow. Yeah. So I'm blessed to be able to be trans and also still be a pastor.
0: That's very interesting. And you said that it's about a four year process. Is that also about as long as you sort of came out to your congregation or has it been more recent than that?
1: It's been a blended journey. So I started the process of transitioning right in January of 2020 and figured, oh, I'll kind of explore some of this stuff. And then we had COVID. And so I was um, inside of my house for a very long time figuring some stuff out and going through the process of a medical transition, so doing hormone replacement therapy. And then when we started to come back to in-person stuff, about a year and a half later, actually, I don't know how how long other congregations did the stay away thing, but we did that for about a year and a half. And when we started coming back in person, I showed up as myself, because that's the best way to show up to a thing, uh, as it turns out. And shared with folks that I was realizing that I was non-binary and um, I describe myself as trans feminine non-binary. Um, I think if you saw me on the street, you would say, oh my gosh, she looks just like um, Courtney Cox, except taller and maybe even more radiantly gorgeous. Um, so this is a podcast, you can't really tell that. Um, but everybody here in this room knows that, right? How dazzlingly attractive I am? Yes, of course, that's the right answer. Thank you. Uh, just
0: um, so the class knows, they can't hear you on the podcast shaking your head up and down. You have to do something audible to make it work. The- yes. <laughs>
1: yeah. That's right. that's the right oh, you, you got a career in this here, Kim. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. um, you can buzz me for all that <laughs> baloney stuff that I'm throwing in here. But once we came back to in-person stuff, I was able to just sort of show up as myself. And But I was really concerned about telling too much about who I was learning myself to be to the internet. I didn't want to kind of come out in a sermon or something like that without knowing what the consequences would be with my congregation or with my denomination. And so um, I ended up having some conversation with my church leadership, my congregational leadership, and then my bishop um, and some other leaders. And um, after getting basically affirmative answers from all of those folks, very affirming answers, then I decided to come out to the world on uh, in a not a sermon, but a testimonial moment in worship in March of 2022. So about a year and a half ago at this point.
0: Okay. And I want to definitely talk more about that and coming out to the world on the internet a little bit later. But Kimball, you jump in here. Tell us a little bit
2: about your faith journey and your identity as your journey as coming out as trans. Sure. So I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama. And as a young kid, wasn't necessarily going to church, but eventually did start going to church in the Southern Baptist Church in a youth group setting. And at the time had sort of a, I guess we might call it a sort of dr- dramatic conversion experience where I was sort of praying for God to speak to me. And then the pastor got up and talked about Romans 1 and not being gay. And so I, as a eight, so did kind of the ex-gay Thing for a hot minute. And how long is a hot minute? Oh, several years. So that was kind of high school ish time. And then I ended up coming here to Barry College, was in the Windshape program, was still kind of deeply in the evangelical world.
0: And probably all of you out there know the Windshape program. We, most of our listeners, I think, have some kind of Barry connected connection. But the Windshape program, how would you describe it as someone who is an insider in the Windshape program?
2: Sure. I would say that the short version is that. And then maybe this is the official version. I said it's a, a leadership, a Christian leadership program that's funded by Chick-fil-A. Everyone is on Mountain Campus. I assume they still are these days. Yeah. But that's sort of the short version and definitely in the evangelical kind of flavor of things. So came to Barry and was still trying to do that whole X K gay thing and it wasn't really working. And was studying psychology and sort of learning about the science of gender and sexuality and realizing that this is not something that I can change. And really, also, I was a religion major, and so studying religion and helping me to sort of deconstruct the understanding of the Bible that I had grown up with. And that shifted through my time at college, really, to be able to see my, at the time, I didn't even have a concept of my gender, but at least my sexuality as being something that wasn't in opposition of my faith. I won't go in too much detail now, but I'll kind of skip to the head of the, the short version and, and fast forward a few years. Went to seminary, sort of late in seminary was when I was able to sort of start articulating my gender and kind of by for the first time hearing other trans people's stories and saying, "Oh, okay, that sounds like me." Came to understand myself as non-binary. I, at this point, had long since left the evangelical church and was in the ordination process in the United Church of Christ, which is a very affirming denomination. Um, we you made a, in my sociology religion
0: class. You did a good job saying United Church of Christ right. is very different from Church of Christ. It's, right. Those of you who are familiar with Church of Christ down here in the South, that's a very conservative denomination. The UCC, United Church of Christ, is more rooted in the North and, and much more of a. Actually, probably one of the most progressive
2: denominations in American Christianity. Yeah, it's a a very progressive Christian denomination. I think we and we are I think predominantly up north because we have so many. So much of our history is tied to congregationalism, basically. So people down in the South may not have heard of us. But I ended up in UCC. But even in this sort of very progressive, affirming denomination, did experience some challenges in the ordination process, kind of especially in my conference. There hadn't been any ordained trans clergy yet, even though we had been ordaining trans people in the denomination for some time. And there definitely wasn't anyone that was non-binary. And so there's just some bumps in the road, shall we say, even in sort of a progressive progressive setting. And I think in some ways that delayed a little bit of my transition, especially sort of my medical transition. So, even as I was kind of figuring out pronouns and stuff, I sort of a little bit held back and delayed, I think, a little bit as I was kind of trying to also navigate this ordination process. But sort of as I was navigating that and and was ordained in, uh, I think it was 2014. Oh, man, where's my memory? (laughs) Not long after that, I think Felt a little bit more freedom to kind of more fully live into that and began my medical transition not long after. And yeah, I guess the rest is history. And that's the short version. That's kind of short version. It's still long winded.
0: Let's take a step back for, Mm -hmm. I think my class probably knows these terms well, but for those who are listening on the podcast who may not be as familiar, just a Real quick definition of trans, real quick definition of non-binary. What are you both meaning when you're using those terms?
1: Sure. I think a really basic way of thinking about being trans and or being cis, right? Being transgender or being cisgender. And cis is C-I-S, correct? It's if you remember your Latin roots, cis means- Which I don't. (laughs) Oh, no. If if I ever knew them to begin with, but- (laughs) Cis means on the same side of, and trans means across or on the other side of. And like in old Roman maps, they would have- Cis-alpine Gaul or trans-alpine Gaul, meaning the part of Gaul that was across the mountains or the part of Gaul that was on the close side of the mountains, this side of the mountains closer to the city of Rome. All that means is if we're assigned a gender at birth, if you are cisgender, then you are on the same side of that gender that you were assigned at birth. So it's you identify with the gender you were assigned. And if you're transgender, then you don't identify with the gender that you were assigned at birth and you identify as some other gender. And that could be a binary gender, meaning male or female or masculine or feminine, or some other position on some broader spectrum or 3D orb or however you want to envision yeah. that. It gets complicated. But that's sort of where we get into how we might describe folks as being non-binary.
2: Yeah. So to give an example, if someone uh, was born and the doctor said, it's a girl, and they grow up and they were like, yep, I'm a girl. That person is a cisgender person. If that person grows up and said, eh, actually, I'm not a girl, and maybe they say I'm a boy, or maybe they say I'm non-binary, I personally would be transgender or non-binary, depending on which language they prefer. Yeah.
0: Is there a distinction in your mind between a non-binary and queer?
1: Yes, I think so. Yeah, go um, for it. Queer is an interesting term in that, like some other terms, maybe originally was used very pejoratively, and it has been reclaimed by a community. And it was used originally as kind of a person that was funny, right? Like they were queer and so that was used in a pejorative sense that way and i think people are reclaiming it to say yeah i'm i am not in the norm and that can mean both in terms of gender or it could be in terms of sexuality or something else and so in some ways it's even broader oh i think so okay. yeah come out in these streets dale there's people <laughs> use the word <laughs> queer for all kinds of stuff and it's it is tricky to kind of even define or to set firm limits as to say no you don't get to call yourself queer right mm-hmm. but there's folks that would use the word queer to define themselves in terms of their sexuality or their gender or some other aspect of themselves or both. Yeah. Right.
0: You want to play a game show? I suppose. All right. Let's play a game show. (laughs) All right. Rapid fire. I'm going to ask you some questions and you're going to, we're going to do this as fast as you can. It never ends up being rapid. So if we end up having (laughs) conversations, but this, the goal is rapid fire. All right. Biggest misconception people have regarding folks who have a transgender identity?
2: The biggest? Oh, that's a good question.
1: So much for rapid fire. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to shoot from the hip and say that one of the things that I come up against is, is actually the word transgender, meaning somebody that has, is picking up a gender other than what they were, if that makes sense. If you were assigned, at, like in my case, assigned male at birth, and then you realize that you're not a boy, that you become transgender. And actually, the way that I understand it and the way that I think a lot of people understand it is I was always not a boy. I just didn't know the words for that. Mm -hmm. So I haven't really changed my gender as much as recognized that my gender was incorrectly aligned Mm -hmm. with what they told me that I was when I was born.
0: I thought you uh, had very interesting points in the last class, which our listeners did not hear, nor the class heard, about just not having... A word for it, not having a label for your identity and your sense of self and that hearing other people describe it all of a sudden gave you a category t- to describe this i thought that was very interesting
1: yeah exactly that's very much my experience it took me going on a personal retreat to a friend's lake house and wandering through youtube believe it or not young people for <laughs> the better part of a week until i came across some youtubers that described themselves as both trans and non-binary and trans feminine. all those words were part of how they described themselves and it helped me to realize what I was experiencing and to put my experience into those categories.
2: Yeah, I think we're, oh, I'm going to age us here. But <laughs> back in my day, we didn't have the TikTok. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it was actually, yeah, was until several years after college that I, maybe really a year or two after college that I heard sort of someone articulate a trans masculine experience. And, and it was just like, oh, oh. Oh, I look like that. That's me. And I think, which is one of the things that I actually, as much as there's a lot of flack about social media, one of the things that I think is a wonderful gift with social media is that it has allowed people to share their experiences and really start to find that language earlier.
1: The very yeah. old first uses of the internet to connect people around, like mm-hmm. bulletin boards, those kinds of like mm-hmm. groups where people were finding each other. That's still happening in some places mm-hmm. like Reddit, Places. I mean, other kinds of things where people that are scattered all over the world that maybe would never ever find each other for a variety of reasons are able to find each other and to share the language around their experiences. And that's been a great gift to me. Yeah.
2: Great.
0: Thank you all very much. Good. Good answer. Good answer. All right. Most hurtful or insulting thing someone said to you because of your
2: transgender identity. I guess I'll start with this. And I think this really goes kind of back to the misconceptions of I think people can say things like I actually don't have so much mind if they say it's a sin as much as like sometimes people like really pathologize. Is that a word? Yeah. Pathologize trans people. And it's they say like you're sick or there's something wrong with you that and then sometimes there's worse things trying to not put fire on the or gasoline on the fire. But some of the things that really get kind of thrown at trans people that were I won't go into that. But things get said about us, especially sort of in the kind of legislative atmosphere that we're in right now that just. False accusations that make us out to be these monsters, and I'm just over here trying to work, trying to pay the
1: bills. Exactly right. I'm at Kroger. I'm buying (laughs) stuff. That's my gay agenda. Do you know what I mean? The queer (laughs) agenda at the Woodworth house is like me finding some yogurt. That's kind of it. Sometimes it's out of stock, too. It is out of stock. (sighs) Yes. They don't have the honey vanilla. I know. They just have the plain, and I got to deal with it. I know. It's tragic. It's awful. I'm like,
2: they, they think that we have these elaborate scandalous lives and i'm like you do know i go to bed at eight thirty,
1: right <laughs> i was at it i was at an event is it
2: a.m or p.m
0: <laughs> yeah oh
1: okay okay <laughs> i was at an event a conference for reconciling methodists which is the queer affirming kind of organization oh. that's working to work for queer inclusion in the united methodist church and it was sort of scattered right and mm-hmm. i was like i would really have appreciated a queer agenda here you know what i mean i need oh. to um, be like can we get back to the queer agenda yes we've got queer anarchy right now <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah we get that way sometimes i don't know if i should do that or if it was hurtful maybe i should do
0: that but we'll go on to the next one how about the most supportive encouraging thing Someone, what was a a
2: moment of just a true encouragement that you got from someone? I actually can start. So one of the things that was really beautiful for me early in my transition, I'd had different times where I'll give a contrast of not so affirming, which was going forward to received communion and two times has this happened. One, one, I was in going forward to receive communion and the person was, and I was very conscious of my non-binariness and was not very masculine presenting at the time was very androgynous. And the presider was saying, my brother, the body of Christ, my sister, the body of Christ to everyone who came forward. And I mm. kind of panicked and I almost didn't go up to the table. You're um, afraid you were gonna <laughs> get, get that, right? Yeah, I yeah. did. I was like, and the, I decided to keep going only because I knew that this professor this was a canner had a lesbian daughter and I was like, maybe they won't screw it up. And they just, I got forward and they were like, oh. And they didn't try to guess and they just said, the body price. And I was like, but also I've had experiences where that wasn't the case in actually in a, a queer Christian thing where I went up and I had my name and my pronouns and everything. And this person like totally misgendered me. Contrast that to I was with a friend and this was the first time and this person was praying for me. And it was the first time anyone had ever used my pronouns mm. in prayer. And it, it like surprised me how affirming it was to have that be, to be seen in that space because it was something that I was so used to not being seen in sacred space. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely.
1: I'm trying to think about a super affirming experience for me, but it would be something very similar. I have made a fair amount of new friends since coming out. I think one of the things that I'm experiencing, I don't know about you, but. And through my transition, I've become like more social, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Like a certain layer of anxiety. I don't think that's true for Kimball. <laughs> <laughs> Those of you who don't know Kimball, <laughs> resident <of> the introvert. <laughs> their Facebook is just flooded with introvert comments here throughout. <laughs> but I've made a fair amount of new friends. And I have heard both indirectly and directly from these new friends that they just 100% see me as, as a girl. And they're like, Your femininity is like palpable, and we feel nurtured by it, and all those things. <laughs> and that kind of language, just really small language or small gestures where people like bring me flowers and stuff like that, is just really affirming. And mm. this, that's happening all the time. Can you? I'm going to ask a question. I'm going totally rogue here. Can you tell
2: the folks about? I visited Andy's church recently just for funsies, and you sang a song that your church wrote yeah. about. God and pronouns and things.
1: Yeah. The song is called All Y'all. So we have a group of musicians that are trying to write new music. And the song All Y'all has a tagline. I don't know if it's the chorus or the bridge or whatever. But it's part of the song is, I think the quote is something like, God was not surprised at a pronoun change. Mm-hmm. God was not surprised when I found a new name. God was shining down when I found a new name. God was smiling down at my pronoun change. Something mm-hmm. like that. It's been a thing. That I wonder if actually I have no idea if I was the inspiration for that song. I don't think that I was actually because it's a part of the life of our congregation. Mm-hmm. Actually, that musician had a romantic partner who went through a gender transition as well. And so it's, we're trying to incorporate that, that affirmation and that love mm-hmm. into our worship as well.
0: Good stuff. All right. Let's get into some, let's get into some religion here. All right. And I, I suspect that there are many people listening on the podcast who are coming from traditions that are much more conservative, and this is just a that even things like same-sex marriage is still very unfamiliar and uncomfortable for them, so let alone moving into a transgender identity. So what would you say to folks who say, just look it up, the very first chapter of Genesis, God made them male and female. God made you a particular way. Why would you want to change the
1: way God made you.
2: That is one of my favorite Bible verses for the gender.
1: (laughs) Uh, It is the source of kind of a lot of our thought about gender and thought about how God has made us. mm -hmm. One of the things that we were talking about earlier, actually preparing for all of this time today, and there are some really wonderful trans authors and theologians and thinkers. Austin Hartke is one of them and Miles Markham is another one.
0: Oh, wait, we got another button for that. Citation. Yeah, we, we, uh, we as an academic podcast, we've we oh, throwing yes. citations. Oh, look at Kimball getting all excited.
2: <laughs> that, <I'd> like <laughs> a good academic citation. Okay, <laughs> go
0: ahead. And something I didn't say about Kimball, I, t- I mentioned this to my sociology religion class, but I haven't said it on the podcast yet, is that I think you probably hold the record for most... After class, questions by a student that in in all the classes I ever taught, which I'm saying is a perfectly positive thing, that you were definitely a religious seeker uh, back then. Lots of questions asking.
2: I'm gonna I'm gonna get a like a scout badge for that. I think later
1: (laughs) patch. Yes, we all like a patch. Yes. Um. So these thinkers, uh, Austin Hartke and Miles Markham, um, have a really wonderful piece that you can read about on the Human Rights Campaign website and elsewhere, actually. Uh, But they're they talk about the image in scripture. Of these, of elements of creation, right? If you talk about the, in the creation, God made day and night. God made the land and the sea. And these are poetic aspects of Hebrew writing. These are Hebrew, a kind of, um, technique in Hebrew poetry to describe perhaps the poles of a spectrum. So when we say God made the day and the night, we're not denying that God made for example, the dawn or the dusk, these in-between times. When we say that God made the land and the sea, we're not denying that God made estuaries or swamps or whatever, these kind of in-between places. And so when it says that God made us, humanity, male and female, in this Hebrew poetic style, it also includes all of the positions on a spectrum in between those positions as well. That's one understanding of scripture to say that humanity is a broad spectrum of gender and other kinds of identities. We're not just two things.
2: Yeah. And I would add, I think that in that regard, I always say that trans people are a gift to the church because we reflect a different facet of the image of God or the Imago Dei. Because if you read that and say God made male and female in God's image, and that is an interesting plural there, then God transcends intentional pun there, um, <laughs> encompasses and transcends both masculine and feminine and everything in between. So I think being trans is a gift in that regard. And I think we see that in other faith traditions too, where a lot of times trans people were seen as sort of spiritual sages or things like that. Rabbi Elliot Kukla, I don't have the quote with me, but I will I'll have we'll it. We'll still give you a citation. Citation. For citation, yes. But basically talks about how in the Hebrew tradition, the sages kind of were regarding these spaces of twilight and dawn as like the most sacred times to pray. And so this kind of seeing gender and trans identities as like this sort of liminal space as sort of a vocation to live into that liminal space and sort of to embody that liminal and liminal holiness that they saw this as a very holy, most holy time to pray. I like to tell people, so in seminary, and I went to Emory, which is pretty pretty progressive as the seminary goes such that they require that you don't use masculine language for god in your papers for example and so when i was trying to explain non-binary to my classmates who were very good candler students and i they would they were like i I, one of you i don't understand can you help me neither nor what's going on and so i'd say to them okay is god a man and good candler students they're like oh no of course not i use gender inclusive language for god and i would say okay was God a woman and they're like uh no and I was like, well, I am just more like God than you are. <laughs> there, like, oh, okay. And so it's like it registered. But I I say that jokingly. But I do think it is – I see it as a gift
1: and a gift to the church. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that there's a sense that these days there are more humans that are sharing that they have a trans experience of some kind, mm-hmm. whether they're like kind of a binary trans person or they're a non-binary person. And we have to recognize that this is a reality, mm-hmm. Right. The, these aren't people making this experience up. They're simply feeling more free to be able to share and frankly safe to share themselves and what it is that they're experiencing. Um, and as a Wesleyan, I'm a person okay. that recognizes that the source of our theology is of course scripture, but also tradition, mm-hmm. reason, and human experience. Mm-hmm. And so we need to be able to incorporate the experience of real human beings into our theology, which is maybe what we're doing right in this moment. Mm -hmm. But I think part of that is saying that if human beings have trans experiences, and apparently have been having them the whole time, do you know what I mean? Throughout history, we have always been in different facets and different cultures and showing up in different ways. Then maybe it's true that this is some aspect about humanity that God has created. And if God has made us, that we need to figure out how to understand socially where, where transhumans fit. And frankly, if other human beings don't think I fit, I don't think that's a God problem. I think that's a human being problem. And it's a problem of marginalization of people that aren't understood very well. And we can get into more maybe why we're not understood and all those kinds of things. But I get into this in the sense of this is a human being problem that we need to address, less a theological one.
0: I think we're way past rapid fire, but we'll still do this. <laughs> all, right, so.
1: all right. Super I, slow I, yeah. rapid fire. You I'm, get
2: I'm not preachers on a podcast. I yeah,
0: that's that. Is, is, that, That's a good point. So I'm not promising – related to that, I'm not promising that this is my last question, but I do want to start uh, inviting our students to come and, and, and ask you some questions as well. But I thought you all gave just a – that was actually kind of a beautiful understanding of – The openness toward the trans experience within Christian faith and making room for it in Scripture, that certainly doesn't seem to be the typical way it's been interpreted historically. And Christianity, I'm sure that most people would see this. Christianity is quite hostile towards non-binary approaches. What makes you stay with the church? Why would you all not just find your own way
2: some somewhere and somehow else. You can't see this on the podcast, but Andy is dancing with excitement. So I'm going to let you go first.
1: Okay. So I'm a church planner. And that's part of what my role is in the church ecosystem is to start a new church. And so we help to birth a new church. And I did that with an impulse that there are human beings outside of traditional churches and existing churches that need to know about the love of God. And so I want to connect with those humans. So that's that's a part of my impulse. And what drives me into that impulse, rather than kind of perpetuating some kind of oppressive system or something like that, is frankly a strong commitment and belief to the doctrine of the incarnation. That's where I kind of root this stuff for me. So when we believe that God was made flesh in Jesus Christ, that God became a human being in the person of Jesus, and that Jesus Christ was fully human and fully divine, that means the person of Jesus, the incarnated God, encompasses and enfolds all of humanity – And that means all of humanity. That means all y'all. Exactly right. Mm -hmm. And that means all the queer folks and all the gay folks and all the trans folks and all the people of all the broad spectrums of colors and heights and sizes and languages. John, in the book of Revelation, says that he looks and lo, there was a crowd without number that was filled with every kind of person from every nation, race, tongue, and tribe. And I'm going to smatter in and also a whole bunch of queer folks in there too. Mm-hmm. And I believe that because God is connected to all of humanity in the person of Jesus that Christianity actually has a strong connection to to even to queer folks, to a sense of an embodied spirituality that some of us don't connect to in most of our daily theological reflections as Christians, but it is absolutely the root and core of what makes us distinctive as a faith tradition.
2: Yeah. I would say all of that resonates. I would say, I think how I would answer this has really shifted over the years. I think earlier in my life it was almost a stubbornness of like, "you can't, you can't steal my Jesus." I think that was some of it. I think I the message of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, what I see is the heart of Christianity of loving, of doing justice that still tracks with me. And I think you put it really well, Andy. Of it's not a God, it's not a it's not a God problem. It's a people problem, and. So for me, I think I still deeply connect to the story. I still deeply connect to the teachings of Jesus and to the person of Jesus. I would say just sort of my own mystical experiences are within this tradition. And I love the Eucharist. I I have been able to sort of separate out some of the ways that the church has caused harm. I think as someone who is... Pastoring outside of the church. I think I would, I think that I often also say I want to hold space for if someone has been hurt by the church and they need to leave, I think that's okay. And I want to name and honor that. If it's just too painful, it's just too painful and that's okay. And I believe that that God is fully capable of hanging out in the yoga studio if that's where you find your sense of calm. So I just, I want to say that what What I have kind of held on to is for me, but I just want to, I guess, pastorally honor that if someone's not in that place, that's okay. That's the chaplain in you because you serve as a chaplain, correct? I do sometimes serve as a chaplain. I do serve as a chaplain with some of the Candler students. I have been a hospital chaplain before and I do spiritual direction as well. But I, yeah, I think I've, I kind of serve as a chaplain out in the community away from outside of the church in some ways unofficially as well. So, great. I
0: was trying to make a motion to encourage someone to come and take a seat. Come on, Someone be bold. Be, don't all rush it. Come on forward,
2: Jordan. Now this is where you do your song and dance. While That's right. A little intermission
0: go here. Go ahead and put your headphones on and identify yourself and ask away. Do you have a question? Um, Actually introduce yourself. My name is Jordan. I use she her pronouns. I did have a question about how you guys still feel welcome in the community because I know there's a lot of people that are not or even advocating for people to get rid of stuff like that, even enact violence towards people like that who are associated with the church. So I I just had a question on how do you continue to be like brave and persevere through? That's, that's a great question. And part of my privilege is never having to really worry about that, or rarely having to worry about my safety.
1: Do you all live in fear when you're out in the community? Sometimes. Do you want to start? Yeah, I'm going to knock on a thing and hopefully not mess up the recording. So I'm knocking on the whatever. This is metal? Yeah. Okay. So I I really don't typically feel very afraid or anxious, but I live in a bubble. Do you know what I mean? When I leave my bubble, then that's where certainly anxiety might come up. And when I was in my the middle, the early phases of my transition, I would go to Kroger and I thought I was going to die. Like just leaving the house, I thought that was the scariest thing ever.
0: Did you run into folks at
1: Kroger who had not seen you during the process of transition were t- terribly confused? Really, no. <laughs> because in, in downtown Atlanta, it's different than the East Rome Social Club um, here <laughs> in Rome, the Kroger where you see everybody and their mama. The the Kroger that I go to, you might see some of the same people, but really not folks that I would see all the time. So basically, I was going into a space of random strangers, and I was still nervous that somebody would be like, look, there's one of them, that kind of thing. And But that never, ever happened and i still feel very privileged to be in a space where i don't feel physically unsafe there are moments as a congregational leader where i'm like speaking in front of of my church where the thought crosses the thought crosses my mind that maybe i should be concerned more about security or the threat of some random kind of violence but my faith commitment is to nonviolence and my concern is more that the the space is open and welcoming rather than a hardened kind of tight security sort of space so that's just comes with the territory and i feel blessed to be able to be in that space right now yeah
2: i would say it's shifted over the years i think early when i was more androgynous presenting i had some kind of close calls as andy mentioned atlanta is a little bit of a bubble but once you get outside of the perimeter you are in georgia and the further outside of the perimeter you get, that's true. So I had some times where I had some sort of dicey situations that I got into or feeling like, is this person following me around the store or things where I thought someone might cause me harm and I kind of extricated myself from the situation. I will say as I have transitioned, I now have what we would call passing privilege and especially in Atlanta, but even like walking through rural Georgia, like people just don't and they just assume I'm a assistant or straight dude. And so in that way, I don't feel unsafe. I would echo Andy's kind of comments that when I am in leadership where it's, this is a trans person, then that can be something that's potentially harmful. I think what I do have fears about is like legislation, legislative harm definitely is a thing. And that's something that I've kind of, I don't know where we will go in Georgia, but I've taken as much steps as I can to ensure my own well-being. And I saw in the UCC a church sign and it said, trust Jesus, but lock your car. And I kind of tried to take that approach with gender, which is that like I'm sort of having a little bit of faith, but also I'm taking steps to protect myself and my family as much as I can. And then the other thing I just want to name is that, A, we both live in Atlanta. So that's that is one thing. But also as a trans masculine person, statistically, I am not as at risk for violence as trans women, but in particular trans women of color experience violence at a far higher rate. And it's just, this is a a very case study in in intersectionality, right? Of how racism layers on top of transphobia and sexism. So I can tell you, even in Atlanta that I know of black trans women who have a lot more fear that they have to navigate on a daily basis that neither Andy nor I have to deal with. Just naming that is not, our experience is not speaking for all trans people.
1: Absolutely. One more thing that I would add into this is that one of my greatest points of anxiety was going into a denominational meeting. We have an annual conference that has something like 3,000 people from all over North Georgia. And the first year that I recognized that I was trans, and I was like, I'm going to show up as myself. I was frightened, but I realized that if I was going to continue to be a United Methodist clergy person, I needed to be able to enter into the annual conference, meaning the the actual gathering and seat of power and decisions and all that kind of stuff as myself. And if I was too afraid to do that, I should probably just quit ministry altogether. And so I just kept at it.
0: I was actually wondering about that because you had said how your bishop and her cabinet was very supportive and how your congregation was very supportive. But I was wondering at sort of, my level of fellow pastors yeah.
1: how, how they thought. I have a cohort of colleagues that we're friends and everybody kind of knows the deal at this point, or they're figuring it out, I guess. <laughs> and um, some of our beloved siblings are departing from among us. And that's also reality these days of the folks that might be less embracing of trans folks are finding a place in a new denomination. And so we may not see them at meetings the same way. And we'll
0: make sure we talk, we touch upon that before we finish up here. We'll yes. talk about that a little um, bit. We have another question. Go ahead and introduce yourself to. Oh, my name is Brylan. I hope I she her pronouns. After transitioning and starting to lead your congregation as a woman, I was wondering if you received any further pushback because I know there are still a lot of Congregations, I guess, would be the right word that don't believe that women in general should be able to leave. So I didn't know if you received. Any oh, that's a
1: great question. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, the United Methodist Church that I'm a part of has been ordaining women since the 1950s. I think it's 1956, and that's a part of the reason I think why I certainly had a I have a female bishop currently, and had a female bishop at the time. And my con- congregation is very welcoming of all the humans, and that's one of the ways that I think we were able to kind of make this work, right, in our denomination is that we ordain women and we ordain men and we ordain women and i they saw they thought that they were ordaining a man and actually they ordained a woman when i got ordained and there's no problem <laughs> do you see what i mean if they ordain women then here i am i heard that there was some conversation at a meeting that one of our clergy is becoming a woman and it, the response is a good thing that we ordain women. That's I, I feel very privileged in terms of the denomination itself, and my congregation, and at all levels of leadership, there are men, women, non-binary people now, which is pretty cool, and also people of all different races, ethnicities, languages, all that kind of stuff too.
2: That was a great question. Thank you.
1: Have you, while we're waiting on the
2: next person to come up, have you experienced that, like, when you're outside of Methodist spaces, like, down at the Capitol, and you're a woman wearing a clergy collar?
1: Not yet. Mostly, Give it a minute. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Do you um, wear a collar, Andy? Um, I do sometimes at certain spaces, right? Like we're we're showing at protests or things mm-hmm. at the state capitol. We just want to signal that we're clergy. Mm-hmm. We do that. And I think most of the time people are like, who is this tall, uh, dazzlingly attractive Germanic woman? <laughs> and that's sort of where it lands, right? So that I don't, anyway.
2: Hi, I'm Hannah. I use she, her pronouns. And this might be something that you wanted to touch on, Dr. McConkie, but I wanted to ask. What do your interactions look like with Christians who are not trans-affirming? If you have any, what are those conversations like? How do you experience that? Do you have any friends that think differently than you? Just all about that. Before
0: you answer that, we need to acknowledge something. Hannah, you are now our first repeat student on Church Potluck. Yeah. <laughs> Hannah did a podcast
2: with us on Preacher's Kids. Oh. She did a great job with that, too. We should get advice for our kids. I mean, exactly. <laughs> Do you want to start, or do you want me to? Why don't you start? I'm sure, I can say it runs the spectrum, and this sort of came up a little bit in our conversation earlier. That I I am sort of open. I try to keep my my for lack like of better word my heart open to all people. as sort of as a spiritual practice, but I, I am I guess tactful or strategic. I guess in my emotional energy, if that makes sense. I think, like I said, in advocacy circles, we talk about like the un, the undecided middle. That those are usually the people that you can sway. To vote the way you want them to vote or something. So I think in terms of if I'm really trying to change someone's mind, that those are people who I think, okay, I might could have a a, a shot at maybe shifting some perspective. That doesn't mean I don't talk to people who I know they're not going to agree with me. They're just not. But I'm not necessarily going to invest a lot of emotional energy. If they seek me out, great. If I'm just kind of living my life in it, and that's just how they see it, then great. So I I have, I think when I came out, especially coming out here at, at Barry and in Windshape, some people flat out dropped me and t- unfriended on the Facebook. I know that's not something the kids are into these days, but kind of just sort of disconnected with me and they, that was hurtful. Um, and others who have stayed like somewhat connected on social media, like I said, I don't necessarily really always cross paths with them, but I, I kind of keep that door open. And I will also say there are also people that I have drawn boundaries with. And I do want to affirm that is okay. That there are people who have been harmful in their language. And, and I've kind of had to say, wish you well, wish you peace and happiness. But this is, you don't get to be a part of my life in this particular way anymore. And then there's also just, I mean, there's always the street preachers at Pride or at the trans march. And for the most part, well, I just, that doesn't even bother me anymore. As long as they don't like, try to actually harm me, I'm like, all right you just yell in your megaphone, honey boo. And it just doesn't, it just doesn't faze me at this point. But does
0: it, I, does it bother you that your faith is being represented in that
2: way though? it That does bother me, yeah. And I, it's more, it's like it doesn't hurt me because I just don't really care what they think, but I, I worry about the young trans folk. And I, I try to usually try to run interference is what I try to do, especially if I am there in a collar. Because sometimes they'll get in your face. I mean, one guy got in my face I was like, you're not a priest. And I was like, I am, so deal with it. But, you know, there's usually like We call them the pansy patrol. It's like these counter protesters that show up with these giant flowers to block their signs or some affirming churches who come out with signs. And so we try to just sort of provide a buffer because I'm in the place where that doesn't hurt me anymore. But a young person coming in for their first pride and this is what they see, it can get dicey for them.
1: My experience of coming out and being in the world as myself is a process of both extreme anxiety initially and then as I had positive experiences I was like, I can do this. I think I'm going to be all right. Hey, no, no hate crimes today. That kind of thing. The longer that I experienced this basically kind of general positivity, or at least not overt negativity, I was like, I think I can keep doing this. And so I've tried to be very protective of myself and my own space. And I just frankly try not to go to places or have interactions with folks that are going to sure. be really hostile. And I think the longer that I'm out here, the tougher that I get... And I think that's part of maturing and all that kind of stuff. And the tougher that I get, the more that I can handle, like particularly out in the street with some of our siblings that (laughs) decide to make choices that I may not agree with. Or even in just the mild stuff. Mm Do you know what I mean? For example, like my my co-parents' extended family are from South Georgia and they are very sweet and very loving, but don't quite understand what it is that I am experiencing. And trying to both show up with grace and patience. And also be clear, this is who I am and you're not going to talk me out of it, I suppose. It helps change them as much as it helps me realize that they actually are trying to understand and have a heart. Great. Thank you. Yeah, another question.
2: Okay. Big moment for me introvert. Also, I will get red and splotchy. It's a medical condition. I'm not passing out. I'm okay. good.
0: It's only audio. <laughs> the
2: general. It, it happens yeah. when I talk to you in class. I'm just <laughs> making so, a comment.
0: Can I go ahead and record it video? Oh, God, no, running? please. <laughs> I, 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 I won't do that.
2: I had a question about what... Go
0: ahead and introduce yourself. Oh, please.
2: sorry. I'm Lucy Hicks, and I had a question about what kind of masculinity and femininity mean to each of you. Because when I think of The Christian faith and some of the Mm -hmm. papers that I've written and stuff for Dr. McConkie's class is talking about like rigid gender roles and like the perception, I guess, of feminine and masculine traits from a biblical standpoint, what that's supposed to look like and how
0: that, if anything like that has, I don't know. You know, what I'm Yeah,
2: that's a great question. I can start. I will say, I think one of the things that was really challenging for me about transitioning initially was I was so very deeply feminist identified. And I just was like, I don't want to be that guy. <laughs> because so much of the dis- depictions of masculinity I was seeing in culture were really problematic and harmful and just kind of gross. So what? helped me was sort of seeing some really positive examples of masculinity nurturing masculinity mr rogers jimmy carter that was something that helped sort of help me understand masculinity in a more i think healthy way it's funny i remember a lot of the the quote-unquote biblical masculinity and femininity and i think a lot of it is just something that's deconstructed along with everything else and that i just i don't think it's accurate I don't think what we kind of get told as biblical masculinity is actually very biblical. I think it was something that focus on the family made up.
0: That's I think when you look at how Jesus behaved, it very often does not square with what I see as mm-hmm. kind of contemporary understandings of masculinity very often. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. If you're – can I go ahead? Yes. Okay, cool. <laughs> <You're looking laughs> I'm rambling. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I am also in a place where I'm starting from this kind of basic understanding that like men and women, people that, that claim – a masculine or a feminine identity can do whatever they want you know what I mean you can do whatever you want because this we're free people in a free world you can do what you want and I did a lot of theater as as a young person like in high school and in college and I realized that as I became an adult and stepped into to actually a pastoral role that it was a role and that I was performing the thing that I felt nobody was really saying anything but I was feeling that I, a role was required. And so I played that role. And I played it really good, So I'm like a really good actor. <laughs> and I, I played the role. And I feel like I was playing with masculinity to some degree. But it was very clear to me later on that I was still just playing a role. And it wasn't me. And that was a deep part of my reflection, is that I could be a good guy, I could be one of the good ones. And I think that I was one of the good ones, protective and nurturing mm-hmm. and gentle and also firm, right? But then I realized on some level that wasn't me. And so i explored a little bit more and realized that some of these other aspects of myself that I had been hiding in order to play that role were the real me. And those are things that often get labeled as being feminine. Does that make sense? Yes. So I love flowers, which is weird. It's not weird. I love flowers. And I love bright colors and i love growing things i love listening to people i love nurturing relationships there's and the more that i have become myself in transition the more that those things have emerged and which is a confirmation for me of this is who i really am do you you think let me ask it this way and it's going to sound critical i don't mean it critical why couldn't you do
0: those things as a biological man sure
1: i tried believe me i really tried and i got to some point where it just didn't feel on a deep level. And we can talk more about what that feeling might be. But that's the way I put about it, that. I think about it sometimes. Have you ever done computer programming? There's like the operating system that you have. and that if But if you start out with a thing from the box, it, you have to install a BIOS, right? Which is the basic in, in and out operating system. And I feel like I had an operating system that was quite successful at being a guy. But my BIOS was not male. And so I, once I kind of realized that there was some deeper fundamental level that was, was not a guy, I needed to change that positioning. And once I did that, then that helped solve a lot of other anxieties in my world. Like I could do the guy things and say, tell you that I was a guy and I was experiencing a fundamental anxiety in that. And once I stopped trying to play the part of guy, I feel light and free and myself, which is confirmation for me.
0: Right, thank you.
2: Okay. Hello, I'm Helen. Nice and close. Okay, so I guess this question is mostly for you, Ms. Andy. Something Recently, I've been going down the linguistics rabbit hole, and something that you said that piqued my interest was how you didn't have the language to understand who you were in the beginning of your journey. And that also made me think of how, for example, in Spanish, the use of inclusive language faces a lot of pushback, because especially in a language like Spanish, everything is gendered. And so I wanted you to elaborate on the importance of the use of that kind of language.
1: Absolutely. And I, and I bet Kemal can add in this to this too. But I think that for me, even knowing, okay, so one of the ways that I understand being a human being, and being a spiritual human being, and certainly being a trans human being, is that we are having an experience. All of us have an experience of being a person and showing up into life. And sometimes we encounter God. And trying to put words to that experience is very difficult, because it, it hap- it's happening on some deep level, sometimes an embodied level, sometimes it's a heart spiritual level, but in a mystical level, right? Mm-hmm. I've heard you say that several times. Again. And we want to, maybe we don't want to, but if we want to try to tell somebody else about that experience, we have to figure out how to put words to it. And I, I have had mystical spiritual experiences and have really struggled to try to put words to it. And I, I hear from other humans that have these kinds of experiences that that's one of the strange things about them is just very difficult to describe them in words. And I think there's something true for me about being trans is that the language itself of this experience, this kind of state that I'm in, this experience of being embodied and being a human being is not the same experience as other humans it's but it also happens to be the same in some ways as some people that use the word trans so i'm learning oh if that's the word that you're using let me explore that a little bit and so it's naming an experience if that makes sense and so i think the more that people feel free and safe to name their experiences and to connect with other people that might possibly be having the same experiences the more we're able to be more fully human.
2: Yeah, I think about language is ultimately it's sort of just pointing at something. And whether that's language around God or human experience, like somewhere along the way, our words are going to fall short. And I kind of love that they do. It's kind of nice that some things are just beyond language. The the other thing, in terms of the pushback, and I will say I'm not at all fluent in Spanish. I took it and I took it and I passed it. But I, I know we do get, push back around like they then pronounce in English and it's like, oh, well, it's not grammatically correct, which I can tell you why it is grammatically correct and whatnot. We'd use it all the time and you don't even realize it. And that person catches you off in traffic and you're like, who does this person think they are? Because yeah, you don't know who they are. I've had English professors talk about why the singular they is okay. Uh, but I think at the end of the day, I'm like, what to me is more important? Is it the laws of grammar or the laws of love? Mm-hmm. And is it more important that someone is seen or that you've got an A on your English paper? So that's just something I think about with pushback around language in general.
1: And I do think language is still evolving. Mm -hmm. I mean, so it's 2023. And I think even the last five years, language has evolved. And it's going to keep evolving as people keep sharing Mm -hmm. their experience and finding the links between shared experiences. Definitely.
0: I I think I've got one final question. First of all, thank you to my students for wonderful questions. Yeah. Yeah, Good job. I just wanted to to close with this because we really haven't talked about the institutional issue that, that, uh, Andy, your denomination of mine is facing the United Methodist Church with just a very large proportion, especially down here in the South, a very large proportion of our churches splitting off, schisming, and many just becoming independent, but a very large portion developing their own denomination. And I'm wondering, it seems that they will often say that it's based on other deeper things about biblical interpretation, but it clearly is grounded on what's going on with our understanding of human sexuality. The The Bible has about six or seven passages that really focus on sexuality and same-sex relationships being wrong, sinful, abomination, different, different terminology for it. But it seems that a whole lot of emphasis and a, a whole lot of exertion is being put based on those six passages. And why do you think sexuality is so divisive and so polarizing in the American church today? I have some
2: thoughts, but you want to no, speak bring to the it, you bring it, you bring it just as a Methodist. Oof. No, you better start. You better start. I'll get the broad. I'll give the broader church. I think I, I think it comes into a lot. Of, I think it can be a lot of things. I think sometimes I think there are people who maybe even want to be affirming, but they feel like this kind of house of cards will fall apart if they don't interpret the Bible in this very literal way that they were told to. So I think sometimes it can be that fear. But I honestly think a lot of it in some denominations is really about power and about maintaining power. And I think the way that Christianity has, try not to get too political here, but has kind of shifted in American Christianity, especially in Western Christianity, has kind of become very rigid and sort of about control, I think has a lot to do with power. And it's... The teachings of Jesus, which so disrupt the status quo and to see Christianity be used to sort of prop up the rich and the well-to-do and those in power, I think, is is really kind of good. So at the root of this
1: problem and all of the problems. And I'll just stop before I get too political. (laughs) I will also try to uh, be diplomatic if possible. I think that uh, certainly sexuality is a presenting issue versus the root issue, right? Mm -hmm. It's the thing that we are currently choosing to fight about. As, as the named issue versus whatever else is also underlying the real conflict. It's the tip the, of
0: the iceberg, yeah. but there's an entire iceberg yeah. underneath yeah. that. Yeah.
1: Be- or in a family system, like there's the kid that acts out and it's clearly that kid's fault why we're all like not happy as a family. Mm-hmm. But it's maybe there's other issues in the structure rather than simply just that one uh, kid that's the presenting issue. So there's that kind of dynamic. This is the thing that we're choosing to fight about. I do think that Methodism historically has reflected Particularly, I mean, certainly, Methodism is a worldwide uh, denomination. United Methodism is a worldwide denomination, but we are certainly like Amero-centric, right? We are heavily weighted both in terms of money and in terms of population to some extent until recently in the United States, and so we reflect the politics of America pretty closely. Mm -hmm. And I think that it was in 1844 that the Methodist Episcopal Church split into Methodist Episcopal Church North or the Methodist Episcopal Church and the Methodist Episcopal Church South. So about 16 years before the US Civil War. So there was deep division within the Methodist Church in that time frame. And then because of that deep division over the politics of the day, right, there became a division within the denomination. I think we're just in that same place now that there's if it wasn't this particular issue, we we're going to fight about something else. And it's reflective, in America at least, of this kind of broader polarization of politics and public life and the failure to be able to have conversations in diplomatic and humane ways in public spaces, etc., etc., etc. I think that we, as a church, are reflecting the world in a way that happens to us sometimes. It's something that Methodists have done and probably will do again, but we are in the middle of it right now.
0: Great. Very well said. Thank you both. Mm-hmm. And thank you for playing rapid fire. <laughs> all right. Anything else that we haven't said that needs to be said?
1: I don't know. What else do I have to say? I feel like I've said all the words. you have other things? Deep wisdom? Go forth and love people. That's right. Humanize all the humans. That's our motto uh, at Neighborhood. Trying to make sure that everybody gets to be human. Yeah.
0: Well, I want to thank you both so much. I know we've got you doing a whole bunch of stuff today and adding the podcast on to everything is just, uh, I'm very grateful for, for your vulnerability, very grateful uh, really, for your courage to come out and, and, and share these stories. And I want to thank our audience for sitting around the table with us today also. I hope that we have provided you with some food for thought and something to chew on. Now... Usually we have uh, little uh, leftovers afterward, and we just kind of debrief and, and continue talking. We might do that a little bit, but probably it would be shorter this time because we've got some food here for, uh, uh, for our students and for, for our guests. And so, uh, Kimball, Andy, thank you so much. We appreciate your support for listening. Uh, as a part of that support, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing. This is where I sound the most like a, a, a podcaster. I feel most alive as a podcaster getting to say that. Until we gather around the table next time, this has been Church Potluck. Thank you all so much. And one last time, thank you to my students, too. All right, we're done. We're still recording, but we're done. Did y'all this has been get to day. ask everything that you wanted to ask? I just did. you have a question? Come on up. Oh, you're scared? I can't, it's still recording. You need, do I need to pause it?
1: Go ahead and ask. Um, if, if the question can get picked up it's just how did your family respond? Yeah. My family has been super supportive and affirming. My immediate family are my biggest advocates and cheerleaders. Um, as a side note, my the person that I was married to, we're not married anymore, but we're still like besties and still see each other all the time and actually are still co-workers. Like We're co-pastors of the church that we work together at. Yeah. It's like we ended our romantic relationship, but still are the deepest friends that are possible. My extended family is also very supportive as best as they know how. They're working on it. My mom was working on it. I've been doing this, like, transitioning for four years. And, like, last month, my mom was like, can I say that I have a daughter? And I was like, actually, you can. And she's, like, processing that, which is entertaining to me a little bit. I was like, yeah, been out here for a while, Mama. But she's getting there. But, yeah, family's pretty supportive. Mine have come a long way.
2: I think growing up, I would not necessarily say that they were there yet. My dad, I think, probably would have been, but he's just he just wasn't very outspoken about things. I think my mom definitely was in the, like, homosexuality is a sin. But I think by the time I came out to her the first time, at the time gay, now I would say queer, but at the time that was the language I used. She was generally on okay with things. She was definitely, like, figuring it out, but was generally okay with things. And then by the time I came out the second time, they had come a lot further and actually she even went as far as to say, I'm sorry, like, that you even felt nervous about this because I just didn't understand when you were younger. Siblings are great. I think uh, my sister's a bit older than me. She's a doctor. She's a doctor. She just sees things very scientifically. My brother's always been very supportive. I think he probably is a little more with it. Like his church marches and the the pride parade kind of thing. And that's what been with it. Um, I don't really, again, all of my grandparents are since deceased. So I don't have relationships with them anymore, obviously. And uh, I don't really have much relationship with my extended family. My parents mess up them sometimes, especially my dad, the, the brain plasticity, the, the pronouns still don't always quite catch. My partner's family, mostly supportive. Some, is a certain sibling is not. Those are where the, some of the boundaries come in. But but otherwise, actually, I think their extended family all came to our wedding and whatever. They don't always understand it, but affirm in whatever ways they can.
0: Thank you all so much. Yeah. That was cute. Thank, Thank you all. One last time good for for y'all.